Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come again before you this morning in the name of Christ. We come to sit at the feet of uh, the evangelist Luke, and we ask that you would give us the same spirit you gave him. You inspired these words for our infallible instruction. And we ask, Father, that your spirit would dwell within our hearts this morning, that we might hear these words, these words might be preached uh, for our benefit, that we might take them to heart. We ask the soil of our heart that it would be prepared, that it would not fall upon hard hearts or shallow hearts or distracted hearts, but that we would take your word and that it would produce in us the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and obedience to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Gospel Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now when he had ended all these sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. They that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And his people said, Amen. We have here in this passage of the gospel, one of two occasions that we have Jesus marveling at the faith of one with whom he deals with. Uh, We have, uh, interestingly, uh, both of them are Gentiles. Uh, The other is a Syrophoenician woman, and we will uh, handle her uh, situation when we come to it. But here we have the centurion. Uh, The centurion has sent unto Jesus... To have his servant, his, his, the, the Greek is literally at, at certain parts his boy, uh, and probably one of those that, like a valet, or uh, one that attended to him closely, and therefore one that he knew and, and profited from and was very dear unto his heart, uh, with a, as Matthew tells us, with a paralytic illness that is threatening his life. This is one of these passages, by the way, that's interesting to understand uh, how the 
that we take the literalness of Scripture. Uh, it is literal, but it's literal in the sense of the plain meaning. In Matthew, Matthew writes that the centurion himself comes. And, and that is not a contradiction here, because what we normally do when we seek to abbreviate, we, we speak of uh, those things done by our emissaries as being done by them. Oh, we do this all the time, particularly in politics. So normally when we speak about uh, leaders of countries going to war, we do not mean that uh, this or that president or this or that king or this or that uh, uh, prime minister is put on the armor and, and taken up arms and personally gone out to combat his enemy. Uh, what we mean is that he has authorized and, and has either started or, or at least continued a conflict that was about. Luke here is giving us, quite plainly, if we reconcile the two, uh, the more exact picture of what's going on, uh, which, instead of, of sort of distancing the faith, writes it in even clearer letters. Uh, so we read in verse 9, that Jesus marvels. Uh, we could translate this word is surprised. Not in his Godhead, certainly, but remember, Christ is fully man as well as fully God. And there are things that do surprise him in the, the flesh, particularly in his earthly ministry, in his humiliation, as we say, in theology. And this is one of them. Uh, as John will tell us in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Jesus is coming to his own, and his own received him not. But there were those that did receive him. And they were an odd lot. Uh, they were fishermen, and they were tax collectors, and uh, they were uh, those that were in desperate situations, and they were people like the centurion and the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus points it out. Matthew will go on and speak of uh, the coming in of the Gentiles and the casting out of unbelieving Israel. Uh, that the, uh, the promises of the Old Testament regarding the remnant and the cutting off of the branches would be fulfilled. And this is one of the first evidences of it. Uh, but Luke is focusing not on that aspect of the narrative, but on the faith itself. That is marvel. So what we need to do when we read this and we see Jesus' remark, we say, aha, here is a faith that is worth emulating. This is what Jesus himself counts as a great faith. And therefore, this is what, as a true believer in Jesus Christ, one who loves my Savior, this is what my faith ought to look like. And so let's look at the faith. And there are two ways in this, that this faith is demonstrated. First, the faith is demonstrated in a humility of the centurion. And secondly, which we'll get to in a bit, it is, looked, it is demonstrated in a, a clear vision of the authority of Christ and a confidence in it. Now let's go to the first one. Faith that is humble is, is part of what Jesus is dealing with. Because, as we will see in some of his parables also... It, Jesus came to a nation that while it had been humbled in the world, 
It oddly, it oddly, we can see this, we know this to be the case in our own lives, in our own societies. When we are cast down, when we are oppressed, when we uh, fail, we often take a certain pride in what we still have left to us. So, uh, you know, the, the great Southern Lost Cause is an ample example of this. And the, the Jewish nation, having been deprived of leadership and deprived of greatness in the world, nevertheless thrived on its relationship with God and made it a point of pride and presumption. And instead of this drawing them nearer unto the Lord God, it put up a barrier that when he came, they were too proud to receive him. But here is a faith that is humble, that knows its own unworthiness. When Jesus has agreed with the elders of Israel to go and proceed to his house, he cometh with eyesight of the house, not far from it. The centurion sends friends to him, saying, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say a word, and my servant shall be healed." Uh, This is a statement of his unworthiness. It's not presumption. It is surprising because it is coming from a centurion. Uh, Centurions were not just Roman soldiers. Centurions, as the name implies, were leaders over hundreds. And centurions were uh, always of a certain sort of, they didn't necessarily come from genteel stock, but they were noted for their genteel character. If you look throughout the New Testament, every time a centurion is mentioned, he's always presented as a respectful, respectable man, a man of respect, a man of soberness. These are not the, uh, I mean, these are not, and with no offense to military types, but military bases tend to produce towns that are not of the highest moral character. And um, this... And, and when we would expect to see Roman soldiers, we would expect to see all that goes with an occupying force uh, against a people that were universally despised. That, that it's surprising that you get a man that is not this at all, but is humble and respectable. In the ancient world, pride was not a vice. Pride was something that upheld the ancient pagan society. That this man would lower himself would be considered uh, by many to be threatening his own authority. He is a man of power. He is a man of authority, as he himself will remark. He's a man of wealth. I mean, he's built the people a synagogue. Uh, Capernaum was not a as small a town as we have here, and even our small town has more than one gathering place for the people of God. And Capernaum also had multiple locations and multiple synagogues. But there is one of them that were built, was built by him. And as I mentioned before, he was part of an occupying force. So we would expect to, to come to an enemy, but we come rather to, to a friend of the people of God. But that also is a little surprising that humility would be here as well, because he was a man of generous good works. If you look at the the, the delegation that comes to Jesus Christ, 
They besought him instantly, saying, verse 4, that he was worthy for whom he should do this, that he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. These, this clearly is not the way that the centurion intended for them to address Jesus Christ. Uh, this is why the, we don't get these words in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew puts his request to Jesus in the person of the centurion himself. Because the centurion just simply asked that they would intercede for him, that they would seek his help. These people have, as the centurion perhaps feared when he saw Jesus coming to his house, have oversold the situation. But he's not presuming, he doesn't come to Jesus saying, look, I have done these things for your nation. I have built you a synagogue. The fact that he built a synagogue in and of itself doesn't say that he was a lover of the Jewish nation. It was Roman policy to, even with the Jews, to, uh, to promote uh, religion. The, the, the leadership in Rome was somewhat cynical when it came to religion. They were very devoted, but they were also very cynical. And, and they thought building places of worship was one of the ways to get in good and pacify an occupied territory. And the Jews were not unaware of this. So the fact that they realize that he's not just a builder of a synagogue, but he's one that loves them, is, is they're putting this forward. But these good works were not his, that he is bringing forward. They brought them forward on his behalf. And this also speaks of his humility. Uh, and we see that he is a man of genuine piety. He, he doesn't presume on that rank that he has, upon the honor that he has, the authority that he has as an occupying centurion. He doesn't presume on the goodwill that he has amongst the Jews. He's using that to get an audience, but he doesn't use it as, as I am. He's not the one that says he's worthy to do this. In fact, he says the opposite. He's not presuming on the fact that he spent a lot of money to build up a synagogue. On their behalf, he's not. Those are not the the language that he approaches unto Jesus Christ. It is simply upon the need and the mercy, and and he is anxious not to dishonor the man of God. Verse six. He doesn't have a, the fact that he's coming to his house frightens him. Uh, he 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 comes. He sends his servants out to them. Something's going to miss. You're, you're overdoing it. Uh, and, and the reason why, by the way, is because uh, you don't get this too much in the Old Testament, but the Pharisaical law, the law uh, that as it had been interpreted, did not allow the clean and the righteous to go into the homes of the Gentile. In Acts chapter 10, 28, when, when Peter goes to another centurion, Cornelius in Caesarea, uh, Peter wants them to know uh, that this is unusual. He said unto them in Acts ten twenty eight, Ye know how that as an uh, how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. But that revelation had not yet been made. That revelation. Uh, was, had not been accomplished in Christ Jesus. This centurion is very careful 
of the honor of the man that he's seeking to help. When we go unto the Lord Jesus, we need to take it with that same sort of of humility. It's not to say that we can't, because I often say, as we are, we're looking at the Psalms and different prayers in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, that we are, to presume, we are to presume upon the Lord. We are. Faith presumes upon His promises to us. If He has said that He's going to do something, we take that as an absolute and we presume upon it and we pray it. But when we are seeking mercy for ourselves, when we don't have the thus saith the Lord, when we don't have the, the particular situation, we need to understand even in those situations when we are presuming upon His grace and attention that we can't dictate to Him the manner of His attention. That we are, as it were, unworthy servants. The in Luke 18, the, there's the parable about justifying faith. And it's not those that depend upon their own righteousness, but those that recognize they don't have any. So the publican and the Pharisee go in. The Pharisee's thanking the Lord that he's not like the publican. But the publican just says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I don't have anything to offer. I just seek your mercy. And Jesus says, that's the man that goes away justified. In a like way, here, not a publican despised by the world, but a centurion. Shows that while he is not poor, he is nevertheless poor in spirit, and the kingdom of heaven is his. The other aspect of his faith, though, is that it trusted the power and authority of Jesus Christ. And let's not forget that this man himself is a man of power and authority. And he is completely subjecting himself unto Jesus Christ. In verse 7, the second part, Say the word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he come. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. He didn't seek after a sign. He wasn't looking for uh, that uh, magical power. Uh, I mean, we can compare him to Naaman. Uh, just, to, just to be reminded in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again unto thee. And thou shalt be clean. Note here, Naaman doesn't actually go into the house of Elisha. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Arbana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in rage, and his servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. And he goes and does it. This is one of the more insidious aspects of the way pride and self-righteousness work. Naaman had a problem not because what Elijah told him to do was hard, but because it was easy. 
Uh, it wasn't, uh, the, the servant says, I mean, if he had told you to go on some great quest, would you not have gone on it? If he had told you to do some mighty deed, would you not have done it? You know why? Because at the end of the day, if he had gone on a great quest to, to get his leprosy back, he had been like Gilgamesh seeking after uh, immortality. He had been like uh, the, the, the great stories of old. He would have been a hero. He would have accomplished something. Yes, the Lord had made this available to him. But in the end of the day, he would have healed himself. He would have been the one that brought his cleansing because he persevered, because he did this or he did that. And so Naaman was, had to humble himself. And he did humble himself. He did uh, listen to the word of his servant and he was cleansed. But, but he had a reticence that, that this centurion had not. Uh, the centurion, he was, he knew that just mere speaking would be enough. He knew that Christ had authority. We compare him to another man of, of Capernaum, one that the centurion may have already been aware of. In John chapter 4, there is a nobleman uh, of the house of Israel. Uh, in verses 48 or 46 through 50. Uh, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. He wants him to come. He wants him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now, both of these situations, Naaman and the nobleman, end up really well. These are men of faith, that men humble themselves and have the faith. But until they get to that point, they're looking for a sign. They want something great. Oftentimes, that's the the problem with the gospel. It goes forth. There is a great simplicity. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we think we have to do more. We want to do more. We want to prove ourselves. We want to make a distinction between the poor, lowly Christian that simply believes the Lord Jesus Christ and us who have uh, given ourselves fully unto his obedience or this or that. But trusting in Christ is humbling. And it needs to be in his word, in his power. He recognized that his word had power. Say the word and my servant will be healed. Uh, And he argues from the lesser to the greater. The only way that this works is from the lesser to the greater. The, the, The Matthew passage makes it a little more plain that he's doing that. As a man of lesser authority, uh, he recognized greater authority in his presence. He recognized the authority of Jesus Christ. He could tell soldiers, go, come, go, come, and they would. He could tell his servants, do this or do that, and they would do this or that. And he knew that this was one who could command the angels in heaven, the host of heaven, and that they would do it. That's not to say that he necessarily had a worked out doctrine that this was the Son of God incarnate. 
It's not to say that he viewed him as anything other than a prophet, but let's remember uh, there are prophets and there are prophets. And there are those like Moses that speak face to face with God. And if Christ was merely that, he was still something that the world had not seen in eons. That there was a clear evidence that this man spoke as God speaks. That this man did what God does. That this man's word was the power of the word of God. So his faith was sufficient to break through all those things. And to see the authority in Christ Jesus. More than any other as yet, besides those at his birth, with those all tellings, more than any other person as yet, he recognized Christ Jesus as the Christ. Not merely a prophet, but as a king, as the anointed one of God. Now, whether or not this is because he, he, he knew G- Jewish teaching on the subject, he built a synagogue, presumably he attended and heard the word read, or presumably he was taught, or whether it was just something in his own experience, uh, I might say Roman religion, but by saying that I'm not saying much because it's an empire and they come from all sorts of nationalities and who knows what his background was. But he sees here the one that is promised to bear the kingship of God. And his faith is trusting in it. Now our faith, Your faith is to be set in trust on Jesus the Christ. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is a fundamental part of our faith. That he is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. That he has the power of God. That he has the authority of God. That he does the works of God because he is God in the flesh. Jesus marvels at this faith because it's humble. And because it sees through all the the things that that would get in the way to behold the power and the authority of God himself. The question for us is, would Jesus mark your faith or my faith as exemplary in the same way? Does our faith rise up? Uh, to the level of the centurion, not as a, as a work, but uh, you know, the, our faith is a gift of the Holy Ghost. But as such, then it becomes uh, an object of prayer, just like the man that comes to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If we find ourselves lacking, the faith will go to the Lord to be filled. And so... Looking at the centurion, we see that your faith, my faith, has to be, uh, must approach the Lord without presumption. Good works are good, and, and they're, they're great. They benefit the Christian. They bring glory to God. Uh, with this, the good works of the centurion building the synagogue, he, he, he gained the goodwill of the elders for his behalf to approach Jesus Christ. Jesus will say in chapter 16 of Luke that make friends of filthy mammon because they'll help you on in the world. That there is a place for that sort of thing of generosity and using your 
funds wisely, that this is not some sort of uh, cynical uh, behavior in the world. It's good, but it only has a certain limited and qualified goodness to it. It does not put you in God's debt. Luke 17, 10, Likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which our du- it is our duty to do. Uh, Luke 17, 10. Uh, meaning that you know, the Lord, because he's your creator and your sustainer, not even conceiving of, of the entry of sin and our rebellions against him, has a right to perfect obedience. And since he only commands what is good and just and kindly, there is no real argument against it. But we are sinners and we don't uh, do all that we can do. And we need his grace. All the more reason that we approach him without presumption and without pride and self-righteousness. And secondly, your faith must be settled on his word of power and mercy. In many ways, we approach to Jesus Christ today in the same way that the centurion did. Not through intermediaries, I don't mean that. Uh, But we do, unless you count the Holy Spirit as an intermediary. Uh, But we do so through prayer at a distance. He's on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has entered into his session as King of heaven and earth. All authority, he says, has been given unto me in heaven and earth. In Matthew 28. We don't need a sign anymore. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we know him to be our king. He sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. If your faith is anything, you believe that Jesus is king. That he rules. That he has the authority of God. Because how else can we be reconciled unto him? So your faith ought not need a sign. And that's why signs are not generally given. It was even in Jesus' day a presumptuous request. No sign shall be given this wicked generation that seeks after a sign except the sign of Noah, uh, excuse me, Jonah, that I will raise, be raised on the third day. He, he sits above, above in full authority. And the way we trust that, the way we bring forth the fruit of that trust and obedience. Remember, this is just after the Sermon on the Plain, and he had ended that in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Chapter 6, 46. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you who he is like. Like a man which built a house and dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose, the streams beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon the rock. If your faith is built on the rock of Jesus Christ, then you will act on that. That you will go to the Lord in prayer. I'm not saying when you're a servant, because we don't have servants, but uh, when those near and dear to you are ailing, when you find yourself in great need, when you need to be victorious against Satan, 
to be victorious against the temptations in your heart, to be victorious against bitterness in your heart, to be victorious against uh, despair, to, to cut down worry and anxiety, because most of our requests boil down to a certain source of worry and anxiety that we're not right with God or we're not right with someone else, then we will go in prayer. Then we will humble ourselves as the Tahirian humbled himself. And we will seek the Lord Jesus and trust that his authority is, as the centurion said, that by the mere power of his word, he will do what he has promised to do. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that you would give us the fullness of your spirit, that we might know the full authority and the glorious reign of our heavenly King. That we might know that in him is the fullness of your word, for he is the everlasting word. Cast out all doubt from our hearts. Cast out all reservations all presumptuous pride, and bring us unto yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.